I thank God that I was raised in the CD. It just felt like there was always somewhere to go. It felt limitless. I mean, it was just brown people everywhere. I stopped at the Black and Tan many times that night. Oh, it was the best barbecue in the world. But we used to call it Nasty Brothers. But you couldn't get a loan outside of that. They called it redlining. She said, but there's only one thing. They don't let women buy commercial property. Only men. Like one minute I'm living in a neighborhood where I know everybody and everybody knows me in the next minute. It's a very loving community. Like my parents have been in their house 70 years. I mean, where are you going to buy crackling from? Everybody's like, oh yeah, you just got to go to the promenade. It was, it was black people everywhere. Everything was here. I mean, everything. Welcome to Shelf Life, a podcast that uses community stories to amplify, preserve, and learn from the voices, experiences, and histories of Seattle's Central District neighborhood, also known as the CD. I'm Myla. I'm Jill. And I'm Dominique. We're three people who didn't grow up in the CD talking to folks who did. Before we get into the episode, we would like to acknowledge the recent passing of D. Charlene Williams. D. Charlene was an incredible woman, entrepreneur, and respected figure of the Central District community. You'll hear her story later in the episode. We want to offer our condolences to her friends and family, as well as our sincerest gratitude for all that she has done for the community. Rest in power, D. Charlene. Where do you go to get your hair done? Where do you go to buy your groceries? When we asked Central District residents these kinds of questions, they shared stories that described a thriving local economy. On this episode, we learn more about entrepreneurship and small businesses in the CD. So everything was here. I mean, everything. This is Vivian Phillips. This stretch was a, um, it was like a five and dime store, a newsstand, Carl's shoe store, Frank's Superette, it was on the corner where Two Big Blondes is. There was Ernie's uh, Butcher Shop, Ace Records, The Good Bakery, The Pharmacy. Mr. Porter, Pappy Porter, lived across the street from us, but he ran one of the most um, popular barber shops right on Jackson Street. And Mrs. Edwards, who had the beauty school, there was, she had a beauty school right on 26th and Jackson. Keith's Burger Shop was right down the street on Madison. When we were sent off to church by ourselves, that's where we would go. That little 50 cents, you could buy french fries for 50 cents. And so, you know, just being honest, we didn't always go to church. <laughs> like Vivian, a lot of people have expressed this idea that there was no reason to leave the CD because everything was here. This is important because businesses in the CD had to contend with obstacles and discrimination that didn't necessarily exist in other neighborhoods, but we'll get to that a little bit later in the episode. Right now, let's hear a little bit more about other businesses that existed in the neighborhood. Milner's store. I remember the building was so old, but it was a clothing store and a shoe store. Those are the Lockhart brothers. Gay's Bakery, 1704. South Jackson, Gay's Bakery was a Jewish business. They were a family-owned business, and Wonder Bread was across the street, yet they still held their own because they had this specialized type of bread. Uh, there was a Jewish community, obviously, 
And so they still had a market. So they were able to compete with Wonder Bread. I, I remember there were so many synagogues in the area, Saturday mornings for cartoons. We'd be watching cartoons and all the kids would be going to church on Saturday. And I used to think that is so sad that they have to go to church on Saturday and we're sitting here watching cartoons. Takuda Drug was across the street, and that was George Takuda. Tom's Grocery was across the street from Takuda Drugs. These were Japanese as well. Um, I remember that was our first experience of Asian food, was at Tom's Grocery. And, and I'm stressing this because it was so interracial, and, and I think that's what made us who we are today. We were all working together here. We had to help each other out. between 23rd and 22nd in Madison, we'd go to Paulie's Beauty Shop. That's Jerry Cook, whose family has been in Seattle since 1901. I always remember that, because after we got through, we'd run down the hill to my grandmother's house on 24th uh, uh, Denny. Bought our records, a little record mark on Madison. Or either we go to the Jones Brothers Barbecue, which was on 21st and uh, Jefferson. Oh, it was the best barbecue in the world. But we used to call it Nasty Brothers. And that wasn't nice because the only reason we did that because he had, you know, stuff on his apron all the time. Oh boy, that was so good. <laughs> but you know about Black and Tan, I was down in 12th in uh, Jackson. There was a lady named Zenobia. She was a dancer, exotic dancer. I always remembered Princess, Princess Zenobia. So that was the memory I really remember at the, at the Black and Tan Club. <laughs> that really upsets me about uh, the black businesses. Uh, having gone, gone out of business, it just, uh, it upsets me. <laughs> My name is Gary Robert Hammond. I was born in Seattle. My mother and father were both from Dallas, Texas. My father had the idea that it was time to move his family from under the Jim Crow and bring them to the Pacific Northwest, there was a club called the Esquire Club. Both my dad, my uncle, and, and my family were very much involved. That's where they did most of their networking. That's where you'd find people that were in real estate, you'd find people that were doctors, lawyers, and Judge Johnson, and even the pastor over here at Mount Zion. You know, they were all networking together. That's the way they did things. And there was opportunity, but there was an opportunity. You know, and it's still that way today because you have to remember, Seattle is a very, how can I put it? It's the kind of place where they'll smile at you, but either they're for you or they're against you. You have to know who you're dealing with. So in our community, when it was a real vibrant community, they had each other. They were resolving issues that needed to be addressed for better education, for home ownership. It was actually a working community. I could walk up Jackson Street and we had our barber shops. We had our own soul food cuisines. Jesse's store on 28th and Jackson was just one example. People that worked at Todd Shipyard, that worked at uh, Bethlehem Steel, worked for Boeing's, worked for Sears, worked for all these great companies, could send their children in, and they knew everybody in the neighborhood. 
And if you needed meat or you needed something, you signed credit. And they knew who you were, and they knew that they were going to get their money. Uh, my name is Lottie Cross, and I was born in Oak Ridge, Louisiana. Uh, I'm the eighth child of 12 kids. When we had, I had just got here, we were just married two months. I had to have a television. I can't live without a TV. So, Welch's Hardware, a little hardware store. You remember that one? I'll never forget that old guy. He, I walked in there, I said, you know what? I've got, I need a television, and I don't have no money to pay for it. He said, what television do you want? And he gave me that television on my name, on my word, and wrote it up, and I paid for it. You know, you don't get that. You don't get that now. The little corner grocery stores, like where I live, the little corner grocery store, now it's a dog shop or something. You know, I'm thinking, everybody got a dog. <laughs> Almost every person we talked to had something good to say about Welch's Hardware. It's what made Bridget Albright fall in love with the neighborhood. And so we would walk to Red Apple and we would walk to Welch's. And one of the things I remember about Welch's is it was a hardware store, a True Value Hardware Store. It was really old and it had, I remember to get down to the plumbing parts, you needed to go down two stairs. And I had the double stroller. So if I had to get a plumbing part, the guys would watch the twins, right? Like they'd be like, well, we'll watch them. We'll watch them. Right, so I'd leave the twins at the front of the store in the stroller for the guys to watch while I would go down and get whatever part I needed. And that made me fall in love with this neighborhood, right? Like, oh, yeah, the hardware guys are watching the babies so I can go get my parts. Well, my name is Leslie uh, Webb Womack. I was born in Seattle, Washington. My grandmother on my maternal my mother's side came here to work she was an entrepreneur so she owned a dry cleaners and um, eventually owned a record store on Madison Street the little record mart and I started working for her when I was seven I sold records I sold records and um, she kind of specialized in jazz she uh, featured penny candy that was her kind of Thing that brought people in because she would have penny candy and people would always come in for that but then she would have things playing and they would end up buying a 99 cents 45 but she had a huge album collection as well one of the reasons why she was an entrepreneur was that she didn't want she goes i don't want white people telling me what to do the only way that that's gonna happen is for me to have my own business you know the grocery store our dentist our doctors our you know our dry cleaning, but our records, our, you know, our entertainment was all right here. And so even though we were redlined into this area, we still managed to provide and get all of the things that we needed here. I wish I could go back in time to shop at the Little Record Mart. But Leslie mentioned something that was really important, which is redlining. Which brings us back to that idea that central district business owners were not on a level playing field with the rest of the city. Redlining was a form of discrimination practiced all over the country. For most of the 20th century, the CD was the only neighborhood in Seattle where black residents were able to purchase homes. And it was legal to deny bank loans based on location and skin color. Redlining was also an obstacle for anyone wanting to start a business. 
D. Charlene Williams' story is a great example of what Central District entrepreneurs had to do in order to overcome those obstacles. I took a test out at Bowens and I, I made it. And I went in there one time for employment and I looked at the fellas there and they was all looking at me, grinning and everything. And I said, ooh, I've got to get out of here. I said, this is going to be a game thing going on here. Because I was a black woman, these was all white men. And you could tell what they wanted to do. They was going to think they was going to feel and touch me and I wasn't going to allow that. And uh, I quit that job and I went over here to Edwards Beauty School. Finished, I was about 17 and a half when I finished. And uh, took the state board and I passed it on my first time. So I worked for a lady named Alberta Woodard. And she was at 1421 31st Avenue South, right up in the Mount Baker district. Uh, they like to play the horse races and all of that. The bookies that come in and they'd be taking out bets to the race. So I moved from her shop and went to Virgie's Beauty Salon which was down the hill on 28th and Madison. And so I worked there, got in there, and that was the worst shop I ever been in in my life. She was a gambler. She, she chased young men. The landlord booted her out because she wouldn't pay her rent. And so I went up the hill with her. Public utilities came in and they cut off her lights while I was doing a, a lady with a permanent. And I had to go next door and rinsed the perm out of that lady's hair. She didn't pay the bill. She gambled all the money away. And so I said, I got to get around and find me something. And so then they said, well, this place is for sale. So I told her, I said, well, Virgie, they got your building up for sale. And I said, are you interested in buying it? She said, no, I'm not interested in buying it. She said, and if you want it, you buy it. Why don't you buy it? I said, okay, I think I'll do just that. She said, you're a woman, and they don't sell to women. I went to 30 banks, and none of them would sell it to me. And I went down to uh, Metropolitan Federal Saving and Loan, downtown. So I put it um, in a notebook how much I was going to pay them, how much they would get. I wanted a 30-year loan, and I wanted a contract loan. So I took it in there, and the lady, lady said, well, oh, this looks fine and good. She said, but there's only one thing. I said, you're a woman, and they ain't going to okay no loan for no woman because they don't let women buy commercial property, only men. I said, fine. I said, just take this, put my check on here, and it's $6,500. Take that back there to your manager and give it to him and see what he has to say about it. So she took it and went back there, and she came out, and she said, oh, he went for it. He said, he went for it. The day I moved in was April 4th, and they had just killed Martin Luther King. I moved in, that was on April the 4th, 1968, when they killed him. And uh, so I overcame that and moved in there. And I've been in it ever since. I remodeled it, and I did everything I said, and I've been there for 48 years. So my name is Marie Kide, and I was born in Seattle, Washington. My parents are Ugandan immigrants, and so I am their first American-born child. 
I grew up getting my hair done at the Charlene's. She gave me my first curl. <laughs> me and my mom, um, yes, when I was 10. So um, I spent many, many Saturdays in that shop on Madison, which it was hot <laughs> because she didn't have no AC and it was pressing irons and, and dryers and roller sets and oh my God, it was hot. My brother hated it. He had to come. It was an all day process. My mom would pack like two lunches for us because it would be my mom getting her hair done and then me getting my hair done. She had a TV up in the corner. She would watch soaps and game shows all day. <laughs> we always went on a Saturday, of course, because my mom worked during the week when we went to school and it would literally be an all day function. Like we would get there at like nine and be there for like five or six hours, but I loved it. Because for me, I've always been into hair and fashion and she would have like these extraordinary dresses from all these different places and they'd be like boutique glamour dresses and if I was good sometimes I'd get a dress if it fit me as I got older and then she just had these plethora of hats and and so for me it was just like wow like I come to this place and it was just fancy and you know she's always been a beautiful blonde and so you know you'd come in to see what blonde look was she rocking this weekend and she would be, you know, selling tickets for some community event that was going on. So sometimes she'd have to stop because she'd need to go to the front desk and sell a ticket for maybe, um, maybe it was Ebony Fair because she used to help them when they would come into town, you know. I loved it. I felt like as a young girl, um, it was like my opportunity to see beauty. I think those stories show how one generation's hard work becomes important to the next generation's experience. Dee Charlene is such a leader in the neighborhood. She hosts the annual Juneteenth celebration and runs the Central Area Chamber of Commerce. And her hair salon is still open for business in the CD on 22nd in Madison. Another person who obtained a foot up from businesses that were already in the neighborhood is Chef Christy Brown of That Brown Girl Cooks. My mom, she worked for the Archdiocese in Kansas City, and so she transferred up here, and we moved to Renton. We didn't know where to shop for our food, and so, you know, we needed cornbread, and we needed ham hocks, and where are you going to get smoked turkey tails at? I mean, where are you going to buy crackling from? Everybody's like, oh yeah, you just got to go to the promenade. So we came here, and we were super, super glad, because we got to see black people. Like, super glad, because I remember being like, hi, how are you? Hi, 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 black people. That was real. Like, that was me and my mom. And so to, like, come back and be able to be in that store. So I sell Black IP hummus and grocery stores, and I came into the promenade and was like, I got this product and I want somebody to taste it. And so they said yes, and then they said, you, you know, start here and then we'll take you at both stores. So that was, they were my first stores that I was in, and that was everything. The Red Apple, like many businesses we've heard about in this episode, was more than just a business. It meant something to people who lived in this area. So many people were heartbroken when they heard the Red Apple was going to close for good. That's the main reason we started talking to people about changes happening in the CD. So obviously when I started in 97, I was pretty young. That is Michael Moss. 
He managed the Red Apple for about 20 years and came up with new ideas about how to run a community grocery store. I was 31, I believe. Yeah, I was 31 when I took over in, in 97. And the crew that I had in there, especially the management team, wasn't very good. And so there was a lot, you know, we had a lot of theft problem. We had a lot of, um, one of the things I'll never forget to this day, it's like the first day I worked there, I was in the back room working, and we had some um, white managers that were working for me. And they run to the back room, and um, they come to me, it's like, we got to get up front, we got to get up front. I'm like, well, what's going on? <laughs> you know, it's my first day on the job. I'm like, what, what's going on here? Well, the kids are about to get out of school. Now, if you've ever been to Red Apple, when the middle school or the high school gets out, we get flooded with children. And it's, you know, they're kids. Kids are kids. They're gonna, kids are going to do kids' things. Well, they were lining up, you know, all the men would come up and line up on all the aisles and sit there and stare at the kids. <laughs> and I was like, look, come here. <laughs> All you guys go to the back because I know if I was a kid and I were to witness that, I'm stealing. <laughs> you know what I mean? If you're going to accuse me, I might as well steal. So what I ended up doing is going up there, opened up a bag of candy, and I gave every kid to walk by me a piece of candy. And they all remember that. And every day for about two weeks, I would stand up there and I'd throw candy to all the kids. And all them guys was like, well, you're just giving away all the profits. I said, but watch how many kids steal the next month. And they didn't catch any kids. So... You know, kids are going to be kids. You know, you ask any adult, have you ever taken a piece of candy? Nine times out of ten, they're like, yes, I took a piece of candy. So kids are going to be kids. But let's just treat people like people and not like criminals. K.L. Shannon grew up in the CD. She brought her nephews to the Red Apple every chance she got. We were shopping. And I remember we were in line. And this guy was like standing there. And I didn't think anything about it until he was like, "Uh, ma'am. Could, you know, could I, could I speak with you? So, you know, we go in the back and there's Jaquan and Sammy. He says, um, well, your nephews were seen on video opening, opening a bag of socks and putting the socks on. And he said, the youngest one did it first and then the oldest one followed. And I'm looking at Sammy because I'm like, you're older than Jaquan. You you should have stopped him. But you follow? And Jaquan's like, no, auntie, I didn't do that. I didn't do that. You know, I said, you're on video, Jaquan. You're on video. <laughs> oh, I was so mad at them, too. I was more mad at my oldest nephew. The young man, um, he was so nice. You know, he was like, we're not going to call the police. And I actually negotiated uh, with him to have Sammy come here for the next two weeks to, you know, help clean, you know, help clean up and stuff around here. And so, I mean, Red Apple is part of the family. The idea of it being gone is, you know, like, you're going to miss it. My name is Aretha Basu. I was born in Wilkesbury, Pennsylvania, and I grew up here in Seattle from the age of five. So I grew up right between the Odessa Brown Clinic and SVI um, in the apartments between Jackson and Yesler. Growing up, this Red Apple was like the kick it spot for us. Like every Friday, my friends and I had this thing we called Hot Cheeto Friday, where we would like collect all of our money and we'd come to this Red Apple and we'd buy Hot Cheetos. And then we'd go back to our apartment and like climb the side of our building and sit on the roof and just like talk about like boys and school and like life and family stuff. And we would eat like three bags of hot Cheetos every Friday. 
I lived in the middle floor. My first best friend lived on the first floor and the other one lived on the third floor. So whenever one of us needed like milk or eggs or like any type of grocery, we'd like call each other up and be like, yo, let's run a red apple together. So we would like bust a mission and like come and like also get like side money to get like candy or like whatever we needed. Whenever I think of Seattle, whenever I think of home, like I think of this red apple. Like this red apple is what it means to come home for me. It feels like it's the final blow for me. Like I've, we've sustained blow after blow. Like my apartment's gone, my friends are gone, my family's gone. Places I used to kick it at are not the same. My childhood feels like it's closed, really. Because there's, you know, clerks in there who've seen me since I was a young kid. They used to tease me about like all the candy that I was buying or like all the junk food that I was buying and now I buy vegetables. <laughs> and so I'm gonna miss those people. It's gonna be so devastating. Entrepreneurs and small businesses are more than just places that provide goods and services. Oftentimes, they become part of our families. They help us take care of one another, share valuable information, and create memories. It makes me think, how do we maintain a sense of community as the city grows? What would inclusive community development look like for small businesses? Consider these questions as we wrap up this episode with a word from Vivian Phillips. One of the biggest things I think new residents should value is the fact that people held this space. Um, the central area, as we know, was redlined. It's the only place that African Americans could live for a very long time. And the care and love that came with the residency is evident. It's not a wasteland. It's a very well cared for community, geographically, aesthetically. And that came from African Americans, Asians, all of the people who could only live in a certain area. And I think one of the things that's been most disappointing to me about the way that new residents uh, conduct themselves, specifically, is with a level of arrogance and privilege. We never had the luxury of having that kind of tone. It's like because you just discovered something doesn't mean it's new. You can follow Shelf Life on Twitter at Shelf Life Story, on Instagram at Shelf underscore Life underscore Stories, and on Facebook at Shelf Life Community Story Booth. Engage with us and let us know what you thought of the episode by using hashtag ShelfLifePod. You can listen to all of our published community stories online at ShelfLifeStories.com. Shelf Life is a community story project that is recording and sharing oral history interviews with people who have roots in Seattle's Central District neighborhood. We are artists, filmmakers, historians, entrepreneurs, librarians, activists, and neighbors. Our goal is to amplify, preserve, and learn from the voices, experiences, and histories of Central District communities. We hope these stories can contribute historical context to the conversations that shape the way we think about change, community, displacement, and growth in Seattle and in cities around the country. Shelf Life, the podcast, was recorded, edited, and produced by Jill Friedberg, Maya Ina, and Dominique Meeks in Seattle, Washington. Original score by Bubba Jones. Special thanks to King County for Culture for the grant that makes this podcast possible. 
The stories featured in the podcast were recorded in 2016 and 2017 by Jill Friedberg, Mayowa Ina, Dominique Meeks, Henry Luke, Chieko Phillips, Leilani Lewis, Rachel Kessler, Sarah Post, and Lulu Miles. Thank you for listening.